This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I hope you are having a fantastic day. This is episode 32, and I have David Vogel, who is the Elise H. Wright Curator of General Collections and the Director of Collections for The Valentine. This conversation I, I really enjoyed. Uh, sat down with him in the John Wickham house. Uh, thought we were just going to have a pretty straight conversation about uh, John Wickham and the Wickham house, but uh, I felt like the conversation got a little bit deeper. Really, just a, you know, more about how to perceive history, you know, how he studies history and kind of what his uh, how uh, how he approaches it. Um, I looked up. You know, some stuff. You know, I don't do an incredible. I don't know everything about the topic that I'm going to go into. Um, you know, talking to somebody about, but I like to be at least slightly prepared. So I did look up, you know, John Wickham on the internet to try and you know learn a little bit more about him. Uh, and, and I was pretty surprised, you know, talking to David. Um, you know, how many of the things that you know I thought that I learned, you know, he kind of explains really aren't all that true. Uh, and while I was actually, you know, setting up, getting the, you know, getting the sound sorted out, um, David and I were just talking and in the, in the flow of it, he said some things that I thought were pretty daggone interesting. Um, you know, first of all, you know, a lot of things that you're going to read, John, if you look up John Wickham, one of the first things it says is that he represented Aaron Burr in his treason trial. Um, and, you know, and David had this to say about it. Things on the Aaron Burr trial, you could go online and start researching Aaron Burr trial 1807, and you may never find a single mention of John Wickham. Huh, okay. And that is a fact, because it's, again, it's like there are a lot of bigger fish in that story. He is certainly part of it, but there were many people on the defense. Yeah. You know, it's like O.J. Simpson. There's a panel of lawyers for the prosecution. Right. A panel of lawyers for the defense. And it seems to get distilled down to like, oh, what he, he was, no, no. Haven't even actually gotten to the heart of the, of the conversation yet and, you know, already, you know, setting things straight here. Um, you know, it's, it's, it can happen. You know, sometimes it's hard, you know, different details. These things aren't lies. They're just different details that get blown out of proportion in certain ways. And sometimes you have to take a broader view in order to actually understand you know, what's actually happening. Um, it's always, a, it's a good idea to look at, at, you know, with a microscope and, you know, back away and look at it with a telescope. I don't know. With a wider lens. I guess that's, <laughs> that's, that's where I'm going with that. Um, it can help you, you know, get a, a better idea, a, a closer idea at, at an, and a truth, you know, maybe not the truth. We'll, we'll never know the truth of anything, especially veggies. You ever notice it's uh, it's hard to, you know, sometimes figure out how fresh things are, sometimes, you know, how to cook things. You know, they say local. I mean, what does that mean? I, you know, I, I, these packaging on these vegetables, I really don't understand a lot of it. Um, but the good news is there's a solution. You can let the farm table help you out. They'll actually deliver fresh veggies to your door. How fresh? within 48 hours of getting them out of the soil. And, I mean, look, I, I buy, it happens to me all the time. Go to the grocery store, you buy a week's worth of food, uh, you plan a couple meals a few days into it, you know, you're finding that the vegetables you bought for that meal, they're not fresh anymore. Wilted or just no good, right? That's not going to happen with the, with the farm table. And when you do go to the grocery store, and you can trust me on this, I actually worked in the couple different grocery stores uh, in the produce section during high school and I can tell you the veggies stay in the cooler for I mean a week or more um, and that's I mean that's how long they're at the grocery store right who knows how long they're gonna you know be there you know out of the ground before they hit the grocery store and the farm table is going to bring it to you again 48 hours after it comes out of the ground and they deliver it to your door uh, they'll send you an email um, you know earlier in the week to let you know what they're going to be bringing, what's going to be in that box. Um, if you feel like you just don't want a box that week, or maybe you don't want what's in that box, you know, tell them not to bring it. Um, there's two different options that you can get as well. Um, you know, why you wouldn't want fresh veggies for a week or every week, any week, who knows? Goodness, you might have your own reasons, but, um, 
sign up for the farm table. Get those veggies sitting sent to your house. Um, you know, you can find out more information at thefarmtable.org. When you sign up there at thefarmtable.org, use the promo code HRT2014 and you'll save $15. That's HRT2014. HRT2014. You'll save $15. And a little bit of that comes back to the show. Um, it's a great way to help support the show. I really appreciate it. Um, support the, the good people over there at the farm table. I uh, want to thank them for supporting the show. Um, but, uh, but anyways, um, there's a, another part that didn't really fit in with the conversation. Again, as I was uh, preparing things, as we were getting the, um, you know, I was getting my, my, my equipment, my laptop ready um, to start recording uh, and it's something that we should always kind of keep in mind when thinking about history and, and kind of and kind of studying history. Everything we live in a world of black and white, and, and once things are out there, and for curators, it's a world of gray. Yeah. Because I hate the word expert. I always use the term specialist because again, no one's an expert in anything, and I hate the, the, that kind of whole thing. It's the more one reads, the more one learns about these stories, the less secure one feels. Sure. Because it is all the nuance, it, and it's all point of view. Absolutely. You, know, you can find a diary from one person saying something, and then finding another letter saying the complete opposite. Who do you believe? They're both primary sources. Absolutely. But they're also both points of view right. about a third person. Sure. Um, and I think we live in a world where we grow up to have our history sort of drilled into us. And yeah. So I... I find that the least interesting part of history is the dates and the testing part of it. It's really, these are real people. They Absolutely. make mistakes. They make choices. And they build houses. Sure. And randomly survive. The fact that this house survived versus other houses that were of equal standing that did not is just the fickle finger of fate. All that being said, we do talk about the house. We do talk about John Wickham himself and his family, his wife. Uh, the kids, um, the relationship um, amongst that family, and kind of the history of you know Richmond and and how humans would have lived at that time. Um, as this is being posted, the house is not the star of the Valentine right now, um, but you should still check it out. Uh, the star is the the core collections. Um, the, the galleries, the majority of what is the Valentine, uh, has just gone through a huge renovation, um, massively different. If you've been before, you probably won't recognize it. Um, they are reopening to the public on October 25th. Um, I've been in a few times during the construction, and it looks great. Um, they have a, a, an 1850s map painted on the floor, um, opened the windows up so it looks, you know, feels much better in there. Uh, go check it out. Uh, I know I am. Uh, as soon as I get an opportunity, uh, you know, if you don't want to go inside, they have an amazing walking tours. Uh, they always do the amazing walking tours. Uh, consistently doing Hollywood Cemetery. Uh, I looked. I saw they have some Oregon Hill tours coming up, uh, and much more. And you can find out more information about those, uh, the tours, the the, the grand reopening. Um, you can find out information about all that stuff at thevalentine.org. Um, I think their old website is also um, the Richmond History Center.org as well, but I believe the new site is thevalentine.org. The old one will redirect you back over there, so it's not that big of a deal, but um, they're changing their site. Um, but if walking tours is not for you, actually, rephrase that. Go take their walking tour. And then also come take a Segway tour with River City Segs, the premier Segway tour company in Richmond, um, the only Segway tour company in Virginia with an indoor Segway-specific training area. Um, they're now featuring the Ghost and Grizzly Stories Segway tour. Uh, the tour is nightly through October um, and, and a little beyond that. Uh, you can check it out. Make reservations at rivercitysags.com. You can also call 804-343-6105. Do it. It's a good time. Happy Halloween and all that. Now, um, that I've gotten the business out of the way there, two sponsors, support them. 
when I did sit down with, with David Vogel, uh, we actually sat in the hallway of the Wickham House. Uh, it was on a Monday, uh, which the museum is closed on Mondays. And, and unfortunately, he sounds a little bit farther away than I do. Um, I'm loud. He speaks at a normal voice. Just remember, it's a 202-year-old house. Uh, definitely not set up as, as a recording studio. I started asking David, you know, how long it would have taken to actually build a house like that in the 19th century? It would have taken several years okay. uh, to construct. Uh, again, the walls are solid brick, the internal mm -hmm. and exterior walls, and then it's covered with a rendering. So all the bricks would have had to have been made locally, fired in a brick kiln. And we start thinking about the numbers of bricks and all these interior partitions being built of brick. Um, predominantly. Yeah. This was a house that was built slowly, carefully, um, designed by uh, an architect, yeah. Alexander Paris, who was um, here in Richmond because of opportunity. So he was a New England architect who relocated to Richmond for a brief period of time because of the Jefferson Embargo Act sort of shutting down shipping industry okay. in the north. Um, Richmond was a new town, a new city, uh -huh. where there was money, yeah. um, really tobacco, predominantly um, money made from the slave trade and also from the flour mills. So right. these are all important reasons that made Richmond possible and mm -hmm. for houses like the Wickham House to be built. Right, because he's pretty famous at the time, right, Paris? He was young. Oh, yeah, um, he, okay. he goes on to become a noted architect and a founding member of the American Institute of Architects in okay. Washington. But that happens in his later career. At this point, he's still a young man. And... He has been very successful in New England, building mm -hmm. um, houses for merchants, merchant right. princes, the whaling fleets, mm -hmm. and uh, people who are moving commodities. And so building a house like this would not have been a huge challenge for him. Okay. He, he did have experience. Sure. And it is a house that is a little different than most Virginia houses of the period because of this higher level of finish and the higher detailing, um, where you see curved walls, we even have a curved door, which is unusual, mm -hmm. but not unique. Um, yeah, I mean, the house was finished with um, a high level of carving and joinery on the first and second floor. Um, the doors downstairs are mahogany um, over a sort of a soft wood core. And then the doors upstairs are grained to look like mahogany. So there are, economic choices that are being made. Right. Um, you're putting your money in the very public rooms, and mm -hmm. they have a much higher degree of carving and finishing on the door casings and window casings than you find on the second floor, which is predominantly bed chambers. But again, unlike today, where we really don't receive guests in our bedrooms, mm -hmm. um, they did. Oh, really? So the rooms would have had wallpaper. Um, the back passage would have been a service passage, so it would have had simple paint, because it only would have been seen by the family and predominantly by the enslaved servants and by sure. Anne Perry, who was their housekeeper. Okay. But... And is she a freed woman? Was white, or... Oh, I believe she was probably white. Um, okay. Women, there, were, there was not a lot of economic opportunity for women, and you were expected to be protected by your husband or brothers or father, family members. And for most women, that was the case. Um, if they were sort of socially uh, correct. Um, of course, there were always women who were on the wrong side of the sure. law, as it were, um, and there were, as in any community, um, and women who were working class who would have worked um, as labor. But with enslaved labor, it's a little bit different in Richmond. So for Anne Perry, she would have probably been the daughter of a gentleman. Mm -hmm. uh, she may have been a widow who was in reduced circumstances, and she needed to earn a living. Right. So we really don't know much about her at this point. I really hope to research her and hopefully find her somewhere in the um, documentary um, archive of Richmond. But as a woman, it's very possible that she would not have left any real mark. Right. Um, and so her story may be a story that's never known. Hmm. Um, but the, I mean, because just sitting, and, and what do you, this is just a hallway, right? There's not a fancy name for the hallway. We're currently in the back hallway. Um, it's a service hallway. Okay. And there's a servant staircase. And currently, this is a reconstruction. The original one was removed by John Wickham uh, during his lifetime and moved to the exterior of the building. And he did that in order to expand um, this uh, second floor room and the room below it, which was his office. So 
we know from his permanent inventory in 1839, which is what helps us understand the house and furnish it to his lifestyle of the time, um, that that was his working office. There were books, book stands, uh, secretary bookcase, uh, chairs, tables, very much a working office, though that we have offices at home. Mm -hmm. And it would have been mostly a private space, uh, a book room. But he certainly could have entertained um, business associates there. Um, the second floor room, by his death in 1839, is what we would call a lumber room. And a lumber room, the term lumber was basically anything that was materials or goods that had value. So if you had a broken chair, you didn't want to throw it away, you put it in the lumber room for it to wait for right. repair. Um, you would store things there that you wanted to keep under lock and key and um, out of things like attics and basements, right. or outbuildings. And so it's very possible that this room would have been expanded because they needed more bedchamber space, yeah. because they had this large family. And of course, with 19 children from right. two wives, um, two surviving children from his first wife, who was his cousin, Mary Fanning, um, from New York. He married her, uh, brought her here to Richmond. Um, sadly, she died after several years of marriage, leaving two little boys who were, I think, under the age of four. Mm. So those two little boys would have been raised by his second wife, who then proceeds to have 17 children. Just amazing. Um, and many of the children survived. I mean, we're sort of used to these large numbers, but then you sort of see also a corresponding large death rate. Sure. This is not the case with Wickham's. The majority of the children, of the 19 children, survived to adulthood at least. Wow. So this is a house that has a lot of people in it. Yeah. And not only just sort of living and growing up here from 1812 onwards, um, but also coming back. Yeah. Um, it's a Southern tradition for people not to go to hotels. There were hotels in Richmond, but people came to stay in your home. So not only relatives, of which Wickham did not have a lot of, being a, a man from New York, and an orphan. Um, and his wife was the only surviving child from her family. So yeah. she was one of the best marriage prospects for him. So a woman was really unable to maintain property uh -huh. in her own right. Yeah. So as soon as you married, um, everything had to be basically written in the marriage articles that right. would allow your husband access and control of your property. And that's enslaved servants that would come with you, land, securities, right. cash, horses, the clothes on her back, her yeah. own trousseau. Um, it's like a reverse prenup. Right. right. <laughs> so it was a pretty big risk. Um, one 18th century American called marriage the dark leap. Wow. Yeah, and it's very true. Yeah, um, you you really did not know your spouse that well or future spouse that well. Sure. Um, until you marry them, and mm -hmm. it's not unlike today. Yeah. Um, for all of us who marry, um, dating is one thing; marriage is different. Sure. And there was really no escape for someone uh, like Mrs. Wickham. Um, yeah. It apparently was a happy marriage. There certainly were numerous children from the marriage, and but what that meant for her from. 1800, when she married, until 1825, she produces 17 live births. That's amazing. So it's almost a baby a year. Yeah. And then we don't know about other possible births that were not successful or pregnancies did not go to term. Sure. So that would have been very exhausting for anyone. Absolutely. Plus she has immediate family of two, of two small boys to raise. And even though she's wealthy and she has 15 enslaved uh, servants here in 1839 at the end of John Wickham's life. Um, so there's about a ratio of one to one um, servant versus family, mm -hmm. or slave servant. And then you have Aunt Perry, of course. Um, and there would have been other labor available that they could hire and contract in right. from the community. But, and are these slaves living on the grounds? Yes, they would live in the house. Oh, in the house, um, okay. And on the property. Um, Wickham owned the entire city block. Okay. At the time, so we really only had this corner uh -huh. for the for the Wickham House now. But when you think about the size of the block and the size of the gardens and the number of outbuildings there would have been, yeah, um, this would have been a compound, sure, um, and a complex relationships of the free, the enslaved, black, white, male, female, all happening. Right here in Corbin. Yeah. Is it weird to build it in the corner? No, because he was looking at the future. Okay. And we know Wickham 
had a very lucrative law practice. Mm -hmm. um, he also owned property that he managed, um, property such as plantations in Henrico and in Hanover, where they would have spent much of the year. The, the townhouse was really a place that you would come predominantly in winter. Right. Everyone's going to be coming in from the farms and the plantations to their townhouses. This is the time when you socialize. This mm -hmm. is the time when you court. Yeah. Uh, when you have access to lending libraries, um, as they call it, circulating libraries at the time, uh, masters in dance, music, art. Mm -hmm. So this was a really social time. And the Wickham's house was really built for entertaining. Okay. And so I guess we kind of um, sort of like figure out, because I guess you, you, before we started, you were talking about the, the, the normal narrative is he's born in New York, he's a Tory, he comes to Richmond, he becomes a famous lawyer, and he gets Aaron Burr off trial, and then they all live happily ever after in the beautiful house, right? Um, but kind of who is, who is this who is this guy, actually? Well, Unfortunately, we don't know an awful lot about John Wickham. Okay. Um, I have not seen a lot of his personal papers as yet um, to really have a sense of, of the man. Um, but he is a member of the gentry, mm -hmm. um, so he would have been affluent. Um, by the time the house is built and by looking at the tax records and what he's being taxed on, this house is one of the top households in the city at that time. Okay. So we can infer a few things from that. Right. Um, so we know that they're living comfortably for the time, um, that the house has fitted carpets, um, which were uh, typical for the uh, upper class and the gentry. Um, what and, does that mean, fitted carpet? A fitted carpet is basically what we think of today as what we call wall-to-wall. -wall. Mm -hmm. So they are not rugs in the sense of an oriental rug, on a hardwood floor. This house does not have hardwood floors. It has pine floors. They were never meant to be seen. So the floors were always covered, and the rugs were expensive imports that would have come from um, England, uh, from probably the Midlands. Uh, they were known for several carpet mills that producing uh, fashionable patterns that um, one would order through an agent, and they would be shipped over. Um, so even though the United States had had you know, political differences with Great Britain, we never truly stopped importing British manufactured goods. Um, they were really our kind of default place to go to. It took America a very long time to develop a luxury manufacturing um, system that could equal, for price or for quality, um, what Americans were used to getting from the colonial sure. period. And so... Basically, once the revolution was technically over, um, trade resumed fairly quickly. And yeah. In fact, England, English manufacturers made a number of patriotic wares for the American market. Mm -hmm. And no problem putting George Washington's portrait, American eagles, right. um, on wallpaper, carpets, textiles, china. They, they knew there was a market for it, and it sold. Right. And, um, so this house, they talk about John Wickham's... Um, politics being a Tory or a loyalist. And in fact, most Americans at the time of the revolution were loyalists. Mm -hmm. They were conservative. Um, the revolution was really fighting for representation in parliament. It wasn't fighting for freedom, for right. a separate country. That was sort of an unexpected default. So... When it's, when it's a really, I mean, pretty extreme position. You know, at the you know from the other side of history, like this side, of course, the good guys won, and, and we love it. But you know, to to take that position there and vocally say, you know, the gut down with the government and mean it, not you know, it's pretty serious, right? Because we look at today when people challenge um, the status quo, um, it can be quite unfortunate for them, right, and, and for all. And so, for John Wickham as uh, a boy born. Uh, 1763, he's a child of that Revolutionary War generation when all the, the various penalties are happening against the colonists in the 1760s and early 1770s. That's going to be happening around him, and mm. that's certainly going to inform his experience. Mm. Um, you know, he was not fighting the American Revolution. Um, he is basically not part of that conflict because he's too young. Right. But he does 
go on to become, you know, a very important American and citizen within Richmond. Um, and we do know that he studied um, sort of military training um, in uh, a academy outside of Paris okay. in the 1780s. So basically, when things are still unfolding over here, and he's a teenager, he's sort of out of that conflict. Right. But yeah, he's over with the French, and the French are our allies right. in the war. So for me, as an outsider, sort of new to John Wickham, um, I think that's very telling. Sure. Because he's not in an English military academy, yeah. which was quite possible. Right. He's in a French one. And historically, so, they don't get along. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, correct. And I think that does maybe show that either his uncle, who is certainly going to be the one probably informing that decision, um, is looking to the future and looking at who the Allies are. Um, you know, the French come into the American Revolution with the American victory at Saratoga. Mm -hmm. and, and from that point on, it's very open yeah. about where they stand um, in supporting um these colonists who are looking for some sort of political freedom and rest in, uh, representation. Sure. And for for Wickham, um, you know, he would have probably naturally developed into what we call a federalist, right? Um, in the sort of post-war period, which mm -hmm. he would have been very conservative, um, wealthy politics at the time. Period. Sure. And what brings him to Richmond? Like, when, how old is Opportunity. he? Opportunity. Um, he's a young man. He marries his cousin. They relocate to Richmond. Which, which is not scandalous, right? I mean, that, that happened all the time. Yeah. Right. And again, the country's changing. There's no movement. Historically, mm -hmm. people really never left um, their community because that's where the resources were and mm -hmm. the connections. And for us, his marriage uh, to a near relative is, is somewhat perplexing, I think, for most modern Americans um, because of what we know and think, but in his time period, you know, marrying his cousin would have been a way of keeping wealth within the family. Right. And it would have been seen as um, a smart thing to do, mm -hmm. and something that was probably encouraged, you know, by the family, the, the Fanning family. And in fact, we have a number of things in the collection that belong to the Fannings, um, silver and things that are now in the Wickham dining room. Um, so... You know, and his son is, uh, eldest son is going to benefit from that inheritance. Um, and that's, in fact, what happens on okay. the death of Mrs. Wickham in 1853. The house is turned over to her stepson. Okay. Um, who promptly liquidates the house okay. and, and sells it. Because by this point, Americans are moving west. Yeah. And this house was really built by John Wickham with an eye to the future. He's not building it just for himself. He's really building it as the family base mm -hmm. in town. And it's right here at Court Ed, which is near the state capitol. It's near the law courts. It's really the hub of business. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, it makes sense. Um, yeah, with the president of the Bank of Virginia is, lives in what's now the White House, the Confederacy. John Marshall is, you know, the other away. block away as well. So, it's Pretty nice, pretty upscale area. Right, yes. And <laughs> the houses here um, in this part of town were large and mm -hmm. uh, well-appointed, and they would have been able to easily socialize sure. um, between the properties, which is what would have happened in winter. You mm -hmm. would have been a party every night, if not in your own home, then in one of the surrounding houses. So Sounds there's always good. some place to go, something <laughs> to do, and they enjoyed partying, um, and it was certainly built around food and drink yeah. um, and spirits, libations. Um, Call what you will, and music. And this is a house where we also know from the Prairie they had a chamber organ, which is a little atypical, but not unheard of, um, in the drawing room, um, a pianoforte in the uh, parlor. And in fact, we have a harp that belonged to one of the Wickham granddaughters, huh. um, who was orphaned young uh, and grew up with the grandparents. So in totally random, I, know you, I don't know how much your musical background. What is the difference between a piano and a pianoforte? It was just the construction of the instrument and the number of keys. Okay, so it's just like a little smaller? I think it's slightly smaller. Okay, all right. And there were a lot of technological advances that made pianos possible and affordable in the 18th century. Okay. So it goes from being 
an instrument, or most instruments being very expensive luxury goods and an artisan-made thing, um, they start to come down the socioeconomic scale mm-hmm. in, until every family, every middle-class family is pretty much able to afford one if they choose. Sure. And England really was the place to go. They were exporting them. Um, our instrument here uh, belonged to another early Richmond family um, in our parlor. And it's of the type that um, shows these technological innovations um, and is the sort of instrument that the, the Wickhams were likely to have had here as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't even know what we were talking about before and, I got off. And every child basically would have been expected to do some level of training. Oh, cool. Um, whether they were good or not. Right. And um, we all probably suffered for musical lessons yeah. of some way, shape, or form. Some of us were good, some of us weren't. Sure. And some of us stuck with it, some of us didn't. Mm-hmm. But the whole point was having the ability not only to entertain in the age before, you know, electronics and visual entertainment. It was really about musical. It was social. Yeah. It was something men and women could do together, something all ages could do together. So it was really about gambling, card playing, and game playing. Mm-hmm. And the house had uh, at least four card tables um, on the first floor. Two in the drawing room, um, which were very expensive New York examples. And we mm-hmm. have the originals, thanks to the Whitney family, returning those several um, decades ago. Um, as well as one in the hallway and one in the library. Okay. So what that shows is there was ability to basically set up four card tables simultaneously that would have allowed... Um, groups of people to play. Yeah. And it was one of the few areas where men and women really could interact. Oh, really? In that time period, socially. Huh. Yeah, it seems like... It was it, around a card table. Yeah, it seems um, like that would have been a, a male-only endeavor, but yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. That, yeah? Um, <laughs> well, they, they like to do a lot of things. It doesn't mean men like them. they were actually allowed to. Okay, um, fair enough. And, and everyone sort of played for different states, so you'd sort of find the table that was playing, you know, penny a point sure. or something that you go for versus high stakes, and we do know that John Wickham, um, we have an engraving in, in the office downstairs of John Wickham's racehorse, Boston. Mm-hmm. And Boston went on to become a very important early um, American racehorse, um, and there are still descendants of Boston that are important huh. modern-day uh, right. racers. And we know that John Wickham lost Boston in a, in a gambling um, high-stakes card game. And sadly, he lost Boston before Boston starts to be <laughs> no. a major winner. Yeah. Um, but we do have the engraving, which um, ascended through the family and is back in the house. Um, sure. Thanks to their generosity that shows this beautiful horse. And, and so that kind of brings up part of what I've, I've kind of thought a couple times. This is not their house. This is not their only house. Correct. Right? They have houses all over? or They have several houses okay. um, here in Virginia. Um, predominantly, um, this is really their main winter house, um, and then they had two plantations that apparently they, they spent time at, one in Henrico, uh, called Woodside, and another called Hickory Hill, which okay. is in Hanover. Okay. And there are antebellum homes on both of those properties today that were built by Raider Wickham, okay. the sons cool. and grandsons of John and Elizabeth Wickham. Huh. But um, Mrs. Wickham writes a letter where she talks about being at... Um, Woodside and enjoying a wood fire, and we're like, sure, you know, why not? Well, it's unusual, and the fact that she wrote about it was unusual because um, wood was not that accessible in Richmond. And Richmond was one of the first coal fields, yeah. So this house was burning coal in right. um through her life, not wood, right? Um, so that's a little nuance uh, that we catch through going through the historical record. For her to mention enjoying the wood fire, sure, that shows that it's atypical for her. It's Absolutely, and sort of gives us a little window into her daily life. That's awesome. Um, and uh, so the, I guess the horses are raised on one of these plantations, or is it? Because that was another thing that I, I read a couple times that he apparently is. That's one of his main occupations is raising horses. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is that kind of accurate, or do you just have to happen to own a bunch of horses? I mean, is that well again? Um, Horses are very important in the time period because yeah. of you know, the pre-automobile industry. Yeah. But this is your way of getting around, whether it was a good sturdy road horse or carriage horses or race horses. I mean, again, okay. 
that were going to be very different animals. Yeah, sure. And, and he would have had a large stable. We know that um, he had a stable across the street here in town um, that's now the site of a Victorian townhouse. Mm-hmm. And that he could have looked out of his library window from his front door across the street and seen his own stable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the it also seems, I don't know what the, kind of just bouncing around a little bit right now, but um, kind of things pop into my head. That's where I'm going with it. But um, also just kind of imagine going to, you know, the Marshall House and even what's, you know, the White House of Confederacy now. Um, this is a much better, I would, you know, if there was a party, I'd be like, yo, we're going, we're going to John's crib because this is, I mean, is it that awesome? I mean, is, or are there other houses that didn't survive that were probably... There were houses that were, that were on the same level. Um, there is a description that talk about the Wickhams and the level of entertaining here that it was quite grand mm-hmm. um, by a contemporary. But he also mentioned it was very formal and that Mrs. Wickham was somewhat um, reserved. Okay. So I don't know that it was fun. Okay. <laughs> sense of sense of fun to come to the Wickhams, but you certainly could expect to be well fed. Sure. Um, and we know that he imported his wines and spirits. Um, and he stored his Spanish wines, his Madeira, in the attic, which was warm, where he mm-hmm. needed to cure. And then he also had vaults in the basement for his other wines and spirits. And oh, awesome. So, so there were plenty of, of alcoholic libations um, yeah. here for his guest. And, and is he, is there any kind of indication that he's like exceptionally good friends with John Marshall, or are they just... Just happen to be neighbors, and I think they're neighbors. They are acquaintances. Um, I have not seen myself um, anything yet, um, but it certainly could exist. Um, again, I'm fairly new to the study of, of the Wickham. Sure. Um, about any sort of closer relationship between okay, yeah. Marshall and Wickham. Um, they are contemporaries. Um, they appear to have arrived in Richmond about the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're on the same socioeconomic level. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would have had children of the same age mm-hmm. um, or age bracket, given how wide a bracket that is. Um, so there are many things that make it possible um, that they would have had a highly right. uh, connected degree of relationship between themselves and, not their overwhelming and their wives. And in fact, going through... Um, the 1854 sale of John Wickham's books, um, one of the books that was mentioned was John Marshall's um, book on George Washington in two volumes. It's listed under the miscellaneous books that were sold. Huh. So whether that was a purchase to support a friend and neighbor, whether that was a gift, right. um, I'm not sure. Sure. It's something I need to research further to see if it still exists somewhere. Right. Either in our collections or further afield. But um, but knowing knowing friends that have written books, you kind of have to keep <laughs> you kind of have to keep that one on the shelves, like right, and just turn the pages every once in a while so it looks like you read it, right. well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe get it signed. Uh, um, right. I'm not sure if that was popular then or not, but um, again, these these families, there are only a certain number of families. Mm-hmm. Um, we're used to much larger, broader world in a much larger Richmond where we can go on our lives and never meet our neighbors right. um, in our own neighborhood. Um, Richmond was a very small place um, until very recently, really, in the last yeah. few generations, where there were great degrees of connection and cousinship. Yeah, especially within the socioeconomic class, right? I mean, you don't you right. don't talk to peasants and right. hang, you know, you don't so... don't socialize or mix. Right. There could be a thousand people, but you're only going to talk to your, right. your peers. Mm-hmm. And the house was really built to... Uh, reinforce that, which is okay. why there's a back staircase, why there's a side door. Mm-hmm. So even people coming to the house that were not peers of the family um, to meet with mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Wickham on business, he's either going to meet with them in a freestanding office, um, or if they're actually coming into his house, they wouldn't come to the front door necessarily. They're very likely to have come to the side door, which is right next to his office, and they would only access it by the service hall. Huh. And that way they would never be anywhere near the family, the okay. wives, the daughters. You, there would never be that awkwardness of meeting somebody who wasn't appropriate. Right. Um, there's also a hierarchy of coming into a home in the period. There, uh, we know from the permit inventory that the front hallway and the stair hall was full of seating furniture. 
There are several sofas and quite a number of chairs with hair cloth seats. And hair cloth was uh, horse hair, woven uh-huh. horse hair, very durable, yeah, and very forgiving. Sure. Um, so the fact that there was so much seating furniture that people are, are using that space, uh-huh. um, but it's also very likely that's where people were, were being placed before they were then either invited deeper into the home to a parlor, a drawing room, or upstairs uh, to a bed chamber, uh, where again there are numerous chairs. Right. So Mrs. Wickham. Um, might be showing off her new baby, which she would do many times, given the large right. children that she had. Um, and so friends and family would come to pay social calls. And sure. of course, she's not going to be up yet, but she would have been dressed um, in her cap and right. her hair done and, and wearing a, a sort of what we would probably consider you know, bed clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been quite formal and elaborate. And people would have come and paid social visits on her while she was still you know, recovering sure. or lying in. Right. Um, and for us, that's probably a little strange, yeah. um, though we all have guests usually come to the hospital to visit, usually sure. following the birth of a child. But to come to your home, we never let people into our bedrooms right. um, who, who are truly intimate friends and family. It, it would be considered weird yeah. or awkward. Um, and this period, it was a very different knowledge of self. Okay. You know, one did not really look to privacy the way that we do mm-hmm. and have those same expectations. Right. Um, and having all these kids is, I've heard, which seems normally when it's this fantastic, it's probably not true, but that there was a dormitory in the back that like when the kids turned five, they would move out into their own little, they all lived in the house, right? I think that's something I, I have not seen documented. Okay. And I think for many years, people have struggled. And we still have visitors who struggle on a daily basis trying to figure out where, where were all the children. Yeah. And this comes back into our notion of what's acceptable for mm-hmm. privacy and private, um, our private time. And everything seems to point towards the fact that there are always multiple people to a bed. And even if you had guests or strangers who were coming with a letter of introduction uh, from a friend or a cousin or something, again, not going to a hotel... Um, they would be assigned a bed space. Huh. Um, and there were multiple beds in every room. There were beds under beds, which we call trundle or truckle beds, right. um, depending on what part of Virginia you're from, um, pallets. And so people would have been here. Is that true that people would used to sleep sitting up? Like That's like a weird thing, right? Not so much sitting up, but they sat in more of a reclining position than we're used to. Okay. Um, and it was really to promote um, breathing. Hmm. Because many people had um, lung ailments. Yeah. They were one of the most common causes of, of early death. And in the 18th and 19th century, um, with things like consumption, tuberculosis, mm-hmm. um, it struck every family, uh, high and low, uh, wealthy or, or poor. Um, you were really not... Uh, protected from that. So I think... Um, I mean, like, tons of smoking probably as well, right? And um, the men certainly smoked um, and dramatically. I can, yeah, I can only imagine, like, in here, like, you know, if we were just, the and two of us were smoking coal. a cigarette right now, yeah, with coal fire. coal fires. Yeah, holy smokes. So um, people do complain about trying to keep soot out and keep things clean in the period. It was difficult. Um, and it certainly led to higher degrees of, of lung ailments. Um, but they used the headboard. The whole point of the headboard on a bed was, in fact, a place to rest your head. Um, so you would be using the bolsters, the sort of long, sausage-like pillows, which um, mm-hmm. are just perfect for lower back right. support. So you're going to be resting on pillows, resting on the headboard, and then you're going to have that kind of valley mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, we sort of end up sort of sleeping in, I think, when our heads slip off our pillows. Um, that's really going to be sort of probably mid-back. Right. And you're going to be sort of building up using feather beds, feather ticks, um, and these bolsters. Um, a comfy, you know, little nest to, to sleep in. And it probably promoted better, uh, deeper um, airflow into one's lungs. Mm-hmm. So, um, that really only changes over time right. as people start to just not have that same issue. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, we change our style. We don't even always know why. And then how 
how does it become the trend for everyone? Right. You know, versus what happens in one household is going to be different than another. Yeah. And so there's some truth to that too. Mm-hmm. And sort of looking at trying to come up with these absolutes is very difficult. Right. Because every house had its culture. Sure. And we know that in many southern homes and uh, northern homes as well, when slavery was still legal, as it was long to the 19th century, both north and south, um, servants slept in your room. Um, and hmm. there were accounts of servants sleeping in your bed because they were again a time when no one ever slept alone. No one liked to sleep alone. And it was comforting to have another warm person there. Um, they slept on pallets by the floor of the bed because uh, if you needed help with medicine or re- reaching the right. clothes stool um, or the chamber pot um, in the night, um, you're not going to be summoning somebody from a great distance sure. from a cabin um, or um, not you don't every, have that bell system. Yeah, that's exactly what's that reduced with Downton Abbey. It yeah. really comes in, um, in the Georgia period, but it, it seems that it was slow to take impact in America, particularly in America itself, because it was unnecessary. Yeah. And we know that a bell system was eventually put in the Wickham House because we have the bells. Oh, wow. Um, and they are uh, 19th century. And that's one of the areas I'm researching to try to find out more about. Are, are they Wickham period? If so, were they here in 1812, or did they come along later? Because mm-hmm. it's in that period where we're having this changing notion of private versus servant. Sure. And so this is a house that's going to be transitioning and changing, mm-hmm. like any home does. Yeah. Um, from 1812 to 18. 39, when he dies, we know there are many changes being made and, and upgrades and updating. Sure. Um, he's buying a new carpet for the um, dining room because they mentioned the old carpet and then the new carpet. Right. Um, we, he has old and new china. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're fortunate to have pieces of both. So we right. know in the 1830s, he's refreshing. And again, it's the dining room is what I'm seeing in mm-hmm. this. And it's because it's the most formal, entertaining room of the house. Yeah. You're going to want the latest of China, glass, silver. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also dining practices are changing mm-hmm. in this time period as well. And is there any kind of indication of building a house and then, you know, war, we go to war, right? I mean, is, is he, you know, where it's 1812, it doesn't really seem to be affecting Richmond. The war of 1812 was not um, prominent in Richmond. Yeah. Is my understanding from talking to others. And, it certainly had an impact, but it, it did not impact in the same way that the Jefferson embargo right. did on northern uh, communities. Right. Um, and, you know, this house is happening, it happened, um, and there's a very high level of finish. And again, he's relying on imported French wallpapers for the bedchambers. Um, his office probably would have, would, would have been wallpapered. These English carpets are coming. Um, Chinese export, mm-hmm. uh, porcelain uh, on his tables, French porcelain. Um, so it's very much a, a house that reflects the global yeah. consumerism sure. that is developing in the 18th century, the rise of creation of a, mer- of a middle class and a merchant class yeah. who are active consumers, uh-huh. and that they're upwardly mobile, yeah. which is very crucial to the right. whole conversation. Mm-hmm. These are people who are marrying up, that they're, they are socially fluid. And the American Revolution had a big impact on the United States on allowing that kind of social mobility. So totally, like, kind of outside the house thing, but, like, you know, getting Chinese exports, or I guess they're imports. I love there. You could use goods from China. It's imports. Yeah, they're, yes. they're, yeah, I love mixed up. Exported from China, imported from here. But, um, so they... Where the hell do you get that? Like, you, there's not a catalog, right? No, there's not a shop or... One works through agents. Okay. And there was a long tradition of that in the colonial period because yeah. of sending Virginia tobacco back to England mm-hmm. to be processed and sold. You work through agents. Um, the Scots uh, were known for this, um, for being very active in the tobacco trade. And that continued, you know, after the hiccup of the American Revolution. Right. Um, it's back to business as normal, fairly, um, afterwards. And so there are generational relationships that have been formed from these uh, formerly colonial families 
through these new American families with London agents and also agents in, in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, and they called them Scottish factors. And the factors um, basically took your raw material and sold it at market. And then your accounts were credited for what your tobacco or what your other exported goods would have brought lumber, um, pig iron, mm-hmm. um, shipping naval supplies, anything that was coming out of, out of the United States. And then they would buy on your behalf often right. and send letters. And there's great correspondence that survives. Right. You can like George Washington writing to agents in London and saying, buy jewelry for my wife, buy a dress for my stepdaughter, buy a, a harpsichord. Sure. And, um, Luxury goods, and then people complaining. Our Washington wrote some very complaining letters about some of the goods that were sent to him, and how overcharged he felt, right. and that things were costing too much, and that he could have bought things locally for a fraction of what he's being charged and get better goods. Right. So you're really at the mercy mm-hmm. of these individuals, right? And they're businessmen, so there's money and changing hands and I'm sure slipping through the cracks right. in these various transactions. Um, it's also a, d- a design trust. Yes. And yeah. they would sometimes send sketches, like particularly to China. Um, and there's a great example where there's a piece of Chinese export porcelain, I think it's British, um, where someone sent a, a drawing and they wrote directions like, Blue, red, you know, the little arrows. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese artist copied that directly up to the China and wrote blue, red. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> because there was a, definitely a language alive. Sure. And so, and you waited years for stuff to turn up because of the long right. time frame of correspondence and then production and then shipping and then arrival. So you basically made do right. in many cases. Or you would try to resell something. If something arrived, it was wallpaper and it wasn't what you wanted. You can turn around and sell it locally to right. a friend or family member. You can advertise it in sure. the Virginia Gazette or another um, one of the American or foreign papers in the time frame. And people made it work. And there are people, they do write letters, I'm looking for a blue, look, I need a blue carpet. Sure. I'm looking for um, wallpaper that are these colors mm-hmm. to go with something else. And it would be very challenging for a, a, a modern Richmonder to sure. try to function in this fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the expectations are different. Right. We have high expectations for our consumer goods. Sure. Um, and we are spoiled. Right. We're not waiting years. We want Amazon well, to bring it with a drone. To, yeah. Yes. And it's got to be right. Fly it through my window. Right. And exactly. Drone, if it yes. doesn't fit, I'm like, Send you know, right. And they'll be hell okay um, with customer service. And, and that's one of the great things about documents is it's so random what survives. Um, and often important documents are kept, but not always this level of daily commercial interaction. Sure. But luckily some have survived. It right. helps us influence what we know about other sites. Right. And I think that's an interesting point as well. It's not like that someone specifically keeps everything. Random things are kept on accident sometimes. And, and think about your own life. Right. If you're rude to be judged, mm-hmm. uh, or your life interpreted by, you know, what you have in your wallet today. Sure. Um, or what happens to surviving your desk door at home versus what you would like to be known about. Right. Today. Unfortunately, they'd have way too much information. I do need to clean up right. some, but... Um, is And so, is, and I guess, is that going to the, uh, like... I know talking to folks about the dualies and you know other people that you know, destroy all their records. Um, I mean, are they going to be in fashion with that? That seems like it was a little bit later. Um, it, it was, I guess Ginter did the same thing, but it, it was conscious, uh, a very conscious effort. Um, some families because they knew that there were things that they didn't want to share. They want to become part of the public record, and you would have people like Jane Austen who was. Uh, you know, not an important person in her own life. She didn't mm-hmm. really not achieve the fame that she has today, two years later, in her lifetime. Right. But it was starting at the end of her life. So her family, you know, went through with well, her sister, who went through her letters and just cut out huge sections of wow. snarky comments about the neighbors. Yeah. 
for that very reason. Sure. Because she knew uh, this is going to end up in, in the hands, and she made a lot of comments about family members mm-hmm. in, in, by marriage, sisters-in-laws. And, you know, um, so I think that is why people made choices later in the 19th century, um, because they were trying to have some control over what became part of the public record. Right. And today, you know, we'd love to know more about the Dooleys and their situation and why Neymar looks the way it looks. Right. We'd love to know more about Lou Sketcher and his relationships um, and what they may look like and how they may have colored um, his decisions. Um, but I think at that time they were more worried about potential scandal. Sure. Um, and so now people just make up the scandal. It's not there. Right. They just start to assume, well, there must be something to hide because sure. there was this holocaust of records. And it could just be somebody who was very tidy. Right. And they didn't like to leave a mess. Um, and, and it's also a very strange, um, you know, when you cultivate a personality, then to to, to have this uh, a sense of a lost control. Right? When we, especially these richer people that, you know, the house is this, there's certain levels of the, the building you can get into when you come over. Um, and to suddenly you pass away and you, you don't, don't have that control, right? I mean, and, and your family now has anybody who can sit through the, the papers, the records. Right. Um, and, and it's interesting. I actually had not thought of that, that those were all people that did not have children. I wonder. I'm sure that's also part of that yeah, decision. Right, without because someone to take care of it. Right. There's huh. someone to take care of it. I wonder about that. Make another it's interesting. Yeah, you know, which would be they, you know, now you would appoint a trustee or somebody who would also control the message. Sure. Um, but it'd be somebody you trusted. Right. Yeah, you, know, you would cultivate. Um, but now, like nowadays, the problem would be to sort through all the tweets and Facebook, you know. I'm just too much. Right. And, um, and that might be good, too, because you can hide a lot. Right, yeah. Things when there's so much volume. It sure. somebody forensically to really go through carefully um, to find that, those hidden stories. Absolutely. And that's something that we're very much about here at the Valentine is understanding Richmond's stories. Sure. That's really what makes me excited about the Wickham House mm-hmm. is trying to really understand who John and Betsy Wickham were. Right. Um, what did it mean? And I'll never know. Right. Um, I was joking earlier with a colleague about um, having recently met a medium who came through and mm-hmm. she was just talking about all the stuff that was swirling here and how happy um, yeah. these people were, these historical people were that I was here curating and that I was you know, doing all the stuff that I've done in the last uh, few years. And that made me feel really good about my work. Um, but it also made me think, well, it would be interesting, you know, to try to have, I would love to talk to John Wickham, you know. That would be awesome. To, to tell me where the chair was. Tell me yeah. where you put this. What color was the wallpaper in this room? The things that we, we are never going to know. And only a curator would have that kind of right. you know, take on things. It's like, this is my chance to truly know how the house was. Right. You're it, speaking to me on the afterlife and have the most boring question. Exactly. Where was the chair? Where was the chair? Not what's it like when you right. like, How did you furnish your room? What sure. did the drapes look like? Um, and, and really that sort of speaks to our goal is we're always trying to make the house as accurate as possible. Right. We want the house really to reflect John and Betsy Wickham in mm-hmm. their experience here. Sure. As well as the later stories of the Valentine family. Yeah. Um, who were... Later owners of the property, the last like, private owner, right? Um, with uh, Man Valentine II's uh, passing in, in 1892, um, this this building, this wonderful, amazing architectural treasure, is being conveyed, you know, through his family mm-hmm. um, as a private museum. Um, sure. for, and he wrote for the benefit of Richmond. I yeah, mean, he was really far thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of take museums for granted, um, but in fact, there weren't a lot of museums in America um, in the right. 1890s. And for someone to personally build this amazing collection of world art, and he was a great accumulator of things and stuff. And this building was packed right. you know, um, with thousands and thousands of artifacts um, on every level, every floor. Um, you know, it's exciting to sort of bring some of that back mm-hmm. in the last uh, year with you know, the Creative History Galleries, looking at the Valentine Beach's story, which I think is fascinating, um, and our visitors enjoy that. And, and pulling things out of storage, um, like the paintings that are just around us right now, um, are things that have been in storage for many years. Yeah. Because the house has been always undergoing change. Right. And the 
museum and the curators here, it's never a static thing. Yeah. You know, so what I'm doing is what I'm doing right now. The next curator can come and do something very right. different and equally or more interesting than what I'm trying to do. And it's, I think it's a really fat. I mean, it, it, I think we kind of went over already a little bit, but just that you know, it is interpretation and. Um, you can never know everything all the time, anytime, um, unless you're a medium, um, I guess, but that's, yeah. We'll try. I'll try to, right. to get you the facts. I'm really interested. It would be a great event. I would love to see a, like a seance in here. Yeah, um, that would be interesting. Um, I worked at a Virginia 18th century house museum that, um, you know, had all kinds of interesting things happening and the paranormal people wanted to come through. Right. Our director was very against it, so we didn't do it. I understand it. We just thought it would just make us look really odd. But that same week, an intern took a photograph that showed a sphere floating in a room with a lightning bolt coming out of it on a digital camera. Right. And she was just taking pictures documenting the restoration. And this thing just appears in the digital shot. And it's like, well, there's mm. no way that was fake. Sure. And, and the conversations were happening independent. Of oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yes, completely independent of each other. So, and the curator was like, oh, we really should get because I really want to know about that. Yeah. That thing, that energy that's floating in the room because that could be, that could be our... Absolutely, and that would be... One of our historical personages because it was a house that had seen a lot of death and suffering in the Civil War, hospitaling and all that kind of stuff. So this is a house I think is very calm. Absolutely. Even with all these personalities that were here and people born and dying and suffering and rejoicing, all the great things that happened in this house, this yeah. home, um, that's what really interests me. Sure, and, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we're kind of on the path of exploring that more and more as we move forward. Right. Um, and I wish that, uh, I, I kind of got the same thing when um, when I talked to Bill, but we got talking so long, I'd love to do the, the meat juice. It's on, I'm going to have to do like an entire, that's a whole story, a right, whole there. story right there. Um, and we didn't even really get into much of, I mean, I don't really have time to even get into the, even much of the museum. I mean, really past, I mean, I think I kind of talked to Bill about that. So, um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, 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 cause I think that's, you know, even, I think it's really interesting. Even if you did talk to, like, if you had a time machine and talk to Wickham, like, like talk to John, the memory is so weird anyways that he probably doesn't. You know, he does it really important to us may not have been important. Right. It's part of his daily life. Um, sure. And we have that come up all the time, even talking to people who are alive, that we're collecting um, their history. And it's like, well, here's a dress you wore 50 years ago. Sure. And they're like, I don't even remember wearing it. I know it's mine. It's my name on the deed of gift. <laughs> sure. I have no recollection of that now. Absolutely. And it's here. Yeah. And, and so we do go back and try to collect stories uh-huh. now. And have greater understanding of our collection, right? Um, but it is the memory, as you say. It's 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 not a perfect thing, mm-hmm. and it's all coming through perception and point of view, right? And also, people like to control their history, mm-hmm. absolutely. To make them sometimes come out better, or sometimes worse. They want to be less grand. Sure. And they say, well, I spent five thousand dollars on that dress right. in 1970. I don't want people to know that. Individuals and communities as well, right? I mean, right. example A, Monument Avenue, yes. right? I mean, we try to control ourselves, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's pretty good. Yeah, and um, thanks for your time as well. I appreciate it. That was it. Thank you very much, David Vogel. Thank you very much to the Valentine. Thank you very much, Dominic, for helping me putting that together. And definitely go check out the Valentine. It's, it, it should be really exciting. You might see me there. I definitely am going to be there very, very soon uh, when it opens, um, October 25th. Uh, support our sponsors, River City Sags and The Farm Table. And remember, when you sign up for The Farm Table, use HRT2014 to get $15 off. And, and oh, man, I almost forgot. I want to thank the new sponsor. Uh, very excited about that. Uh, Paul, Paul, thank you very much. Uh, Paul went to uh, historyreplaystoday.org, clicked on the support button. He made a donate donation there. Uh, everybody that contributes, everyone that invests in the program, I really appreciate it. 
you know, this is somewhat of a labor of love, trying to figure out how to how to make this make this thing work, keep it going, keeping it free. Um, so every little bit helps. Thank you very much. And as always, let me know what you think about the, the podcast. Uh, if you've listened this far, you've definitely enjoyed it, or hopefully you've enjoyed it, and you're not putting yourself through this kind of torture. Um, but go to iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you're listening to this, and write a review for me. That always helps out. You don't have to put words, even. You can you know, just go there and just put the little stars, I think. I'm pretty sure you can do that. Um, and uh, let me know, you know, suggest a guest, suggest a topic. That'd be awesome. I've been gotten some, some really awesome uh, suggestions recently. Uh, some that it actually paid off. I'm really excited about. So some really awesome shows coming up. But if there's something you want to hear about, let me know. I you know I'm pretty excited about it. You know, have the uh, um, coming up very soon. We're going to be doing uh, Lewis Ginter and the uh, the human being Lewis Ginter <laughs> and the botanical gardens. Have the the capital during the Civil War um, and the complications that kind of uh, uh, brings about. Um, a lot of really awesome shows coming up. Thank you very much for listening. Let me stop running my mouth. Uh, let me know what you think about this at History Replays on Twitter, on Facebook, History Replays Today, and on Tumblr, History Replays Today as well. And uh, make it a great day.